Brothers and sisters, I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation. As we continue our study, we come upon chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning. Revelation chapter 13 and verses 1 to 10. Recall what I said last week, and we're going to begin with the last sentence of verse 17, as it goes with verse 1. So please then hear with me the reading of God's inspired and inerrant Word. And He stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, With the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, my hope, brothers and sisters, as we move along in our study in the book of Revelation, is that week after week, the book of Revelation becomes more and more demystified for you. It becomes more and more demystified. That we, over the last few months, have grown more confident by the grace of God in our ability to grasp what the book is saying to us. Right? Realizing that this book was not given to stump you. It was given to enlighten you. It was given to teach you. And it was given to bless you by the grace of God. Right? The contents of this book were given to be understood. Why? Well, because the purpose of the book is to encourage and to comfort all of the saints living throughout the last days. Right? This book is, is full of help for Christians from the seven churches who were the initial targets of these letters all the way to the saints living in the present day. And it does so by pulling back the curtain of sorts to heaven and allowing us to, to peer in 
from a heavenly perspective to see what's going on from a vantage point of God. And it depicts for us then, in vivid imagery, the, the great conflict that has been going on throughout human history from the time of the fall, which will continue to transpire until the return of Christ. It is a conflict now, brothers and sisters, that Christians living on earth now feel the effects of as it trickles down to us. And in many ways, that great conflict that took place between Christ and the devil has now become our battle as well, hasn't it? As the devil has now turned his attention upon the woman and her offspring. And even with all that is occurring that we've been reading about at the end of the first century, the reality for the saints is, as John writes, is that things are only going to get worse. They're only going to get worse for succeeding generations. And so John writes what he has shown. He writes down these visions for the saints in order to what? To encourage them in the midst of trial and suffering and testing so that they might not give in as they await the return of Christ. Right? What the saints are given is this heavenly picture to encourage them Right, to encourage them about the past and what has transpired, to encourage them about their present and also to encourage them about their future. And what does that heavenly picture that has been depicted for us that we've recently been reading about show? Right, it depicts for us the defeat of the dragon who is Satan. And with the defeat of the dragon, it depicts for us likewise the church's victory which ought to provide hope and strength and comfort them for them in order that they would not forsake Christ, in order that they might hold fast to their witness in the world, in order that they might continue to obey the commandments of God even in the world that tries to stop them from doing such. Right In the picture that the book of Revelation gives to us, we see in the end our victory. We see in the end that victory that has been secured by Christ who has now taken the scroll and who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. A victory over the dragon that we read about in chapter 12, verses 1-6. to The defeat of the devil that was further narrated for us in chapter 12, verses 7-12. to And then we see what resulted from that as the devil or the dragon now turned his attention to the woman and her offspring in chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Now in our text today, what we are to see in chapter 13 is that it does not chronologically come after chapter 12. But rather, it further describes for us what we just read in verses 13 to 17. It depicts for us who the agents or the instruments or the tools that the devil uses to persecute God's people here on earth. And that agent is revealed to us the image of this first beast that John sees. And so our first point today, brothers and sisters, as we look at our text, will be the identity of the beast. That's our first point today. The identity of the beast. Now what I said earlier rings true here. right? That what God has given to us is meant to be understood. And it's no different here. Now, that doesn't mean that some passages of Scripture, some texts, some books, are harder to understand than others. 
Right? We, we know that that's true, but oftentimes what I think is the case is we can make things seem much more difficult than they have to be. And I think we do that here in Revelation 13 with all of this speculation of, of who the beast must be. And yet, if we just understood, if we just kept in mind that the book of Revelation, as I've said on multiple occasions, is a divine commentary of the Old Testament with over 400 quotations and allusions from the Old Testament, it would help us in our understanding of the beast. Because likewise, throughout the book of Revelation, what we see is that the beast himself is cloaked in. He is draped in Old Testament imagery. And so if we just look back to that Old Testament imagery, it would help us to draw out more plainly, to be able to see who is this beast that is revealed to us in chapter 13. Now the dragon begins by what? He begins, we're told, by standing on the shore of the sea. We've said on multiple occasions that the sea oftentimes represents what? Chaos. Rebellion. Evil. It makes a lot of sense then if you remember Revelation 21 verse 1 and why it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. Do we see? And so the dragon positions himself upon the shore to now call forth out of those devilish waters of the bottomless pit this agent or this instrument that he will use on the earth to carry out his devious and devilish plan. What is depicted for us here is what was described for us in chapter 12. Right? The devil knows after the victory of Christ that his time is short. And so now he comes upon the people of God with great wrath. And we see here in the first beast right, the instrument of that great wrath. Right? The, the, uh, the beast is the primary tool that the dragon or Satan uses to attack God's people here on earth. Now, Daniel 7 is clearly behind the imagery of our first two verses of our text today. And so I want you all to please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. As we read, keep, keep in the back of your mind what we just read in the book of Revelation. Keep in mind verses 1 and 2 and how the beast was described. We'll start at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. 
It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. A couple of things for us to note immediately. The first thing is what happens to the beast? Where do they all come out of? Come out of the sea. Just as our first beast does in our text today, doesn't it? And as one commentator points out, to, to further connect what I've been saying about uh, figures coming out of the sea and evil and rebellion and chaos, he says this, that without exception, without exception, the imagery of a sea monster is used throughout the Old Testament to represent evil kingdoms who persecute God's people. Right, hear that again. Without exception, the imagery of a sea monster coming out from the sea is used throughout the Old Testament to represent evil kingdoms who persecute God's people. And as you can read later in the book of Daniel, in verse 16 of chapter 7, we're told that these four beasts represent four kings or, or four kingdoms that will rule on the earth. The four kingdoms are Babylon and Persia and Greece and the fourth being Rome. Now this beast in our text is immediately identified as having ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on the horns and blasphemous names written on its head. Now as we think back to the book of Daniel, seeing that the book of Revelation is a commentary of the Old Testament, we have to ask, who was it that had ten horns? Who was it? The fourth beast, which is the kingdom of Rome. Right? The ten horns of the fourth beast, we are later told in Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, symbolize ten kings of the kingdom as well. And so in our text, with this ten horns and the ten diadems, it further demonstrates with Daniel 7.24 right, that what is being spoken about here in our text are earthly kings, right, or earthly rulers. Right? That is what is being addressed here. Which is to say, we are not to look for some ghastly beast to come out of the sea at some point with ten horns and ten crowns on its head and have seven heads. Right? That's not what we are to be looking for. That's, that's not what is being addressed here. And so this beast then with ten horns and ten diadems and seven heads, all numbers for completion or totality or fullness, then emphasize for us what? The completeness or the comprehensiveness of this beast's power over the world and its worldwide effect. Right? As we continue to interpret numbers the same way consistently as we have throughout the book of Revelation, Right, we see then the 
these numbers symbolize completeness, fullness, indicating then for us the, the comprehensive nature of this beast's power and authority over the world that is exercised by the beast. Yet we have to ask ourselves, who else has ten horns and seven heads? We just read about them in chapter 12. Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 12, please. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. I want us to see then, brothers and sisters, that this this beast, this first beast, does what? He takes upon himself the characteristics of the dragon who is the devil. And so it demonstrates for us that really the dragon is the leader. right? The dragon is the leader. The devil is the leader who brings forth this first beast in order to carry out his leader's will here on earth. And he does this through false claims of his kingship in opposition to Christ. This likewise, too, is what crowns symbolize. right? That this beast shows forth before people and puts himself before people as the as the King of Kings and as the Lord of Lords, right? The the blasphemous names written on his heads represent the the blasphemous claims that this King makes to the world. How he shows himself and tries to put forth himself to be divine and have divine kingship. And this is exactly what the. Roman imperial cult did in the first century during the lives of these Christians. The coinage of the empire bore the emperor's divine titles on it. Domitian, who was the the ruler towards the end of the first century, wanted to be called our God and our Lord. And so this is why the seven churches and those other Christians living in the first century would have immediately identified the beast with Rome. The first century Christians would have immediately recognized the beast and identified it with Rome. But we have to continue to to read on in our text to, to further draw out what the identity of this beast is. Because why? In Daniel 7, verses 3 to 8, what are we told? We find that there is a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrifying beast, which represent what? Four world empires. That's what they represent. But now I ask you, what do we see in the first two verses of chapter 13? What is it that we see in the first two verses of chapter 13? That all four images are applied to the beast. All four images are applied to the beast. The four beasts are combined in one, which emphasizes what? Not only the extreme oppressiveness of the beast and the great ferocity and power that he exercises, but likewise, what I think it demonstrates for us is the trans-historical nature of the beast as well. And what I mean by that is this, that just as the four beasts of Daniel 7 represented four separate kingdoms which span the course of hundreds of years. This first beast now, which combines all four kingdoms, transcends 
now 2,000 years and represents not one world kingdom, but all evil world kingdoms that seek to persecute the people of God. That is what we need to see. That is what we need to see. For John's listeners in the first century, the embodiment of the beast is Rome. It is Rome. But the satanic evil expressed by Rome continued to be expressed kingdom after kingdom and ruler after ruler. And it will continue to do so until the return of Christ. So that in this image of the beast, we shall not see just one kingdom. I mean, just look at that description. No no one kingdom fits that description. No, what it describes is something far greater than any one kingdom. And in fact, what it describes for us is a composite of all of the evil kingdoms of the world that serve the devil's purposes. William Hendrickson says in his commentary on the book of Revelation in this passage, he says that the, the sea beast symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all nations and governments of the world throughout all history. The beast symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan throughout all of history in different nations and rulers and kingdoms and leaders. Now, more though is said about the beast. So look with me at verse 3, please. There we read on, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And we even read in the start of verse 4, and they, they worshipped then the dragon and they worshipped the beast. Now, some identify the beast of chapter 13 with the Roman Emperor Nero who died in 68 AD. And it's Verse 3 is one of the reasons that they use to support their contention that this is speaking about Nero. And they say that because after Nero died, a legend arose. And that legend arose and it said that Nero really didn't die. But what Nero did was he, he kind of ran away, he escaped, and now he's going to one day come back to reclaim the empire. Right? That, that was the legend. And there were many believers living during that time that absolutely believed that. Many people in that time that believed that. But I submit to you that this is not at all what John is referencing. He's not at all referencing this. And, and I say that for a few reasons. One, of, one reason is this. Because if John believed that and taught that, John would be believing a lie and teaching a lie as truth. Because Nero really did die. Secondly, John's beast did not receive a mortal wound that was self-inflicted. Nero's was. And in fact, what we read is that the beast's wound is inflicted by a sword. And as we will be told later on, the sword was wielded by Christ. Nero killed himself. Nero committed suicide because the Roman Senate had turned against him. And then finally, we're told that the world, the world marvels at the beast. Well, brothers and sisters, Nero was a disgraced ruler. He was a disgraced ruler. And so it did not cause Rome to worship him, since the legend has him returning with an enemy army to reclaim Rome. And so Nero in the legend isn't an ally to Rome. 
He's a threat. He's an enemy. And so we have to ask ourselves, then, what does this mortal wound and the healing then symbolize in our text? And ultimately, brothers and sisters, it represents the death blow to Satan dealt by Christ in His crucifixion, in His resurrection, and in His ascension. That is what it symbolizes. This wound sounds very familiar to Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? He will crush the head of the serpent. The wound, now we're told, appeared to be fatal. But what we need to understand is that in fact it was. The wound was fatal. It was a mortal wound. But the devil's continued activity in the world through different agents makes it appear as if he has overcome the death blow. But he is not. Even our text makes it seem as if it really wasn't a death, right? It makes it seem as if it was an appearance of death, but not really. But that's not correct. And we actually have a parallel to this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Flip over there with me, please. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. In both places, we need to see it's talking about a real death, right? A real defeat. It's not as if it appears that a death blow has been given to the, the beast, but in actuality, he has received the death blow. Just as Christ's death wasn't a, an apparent death, but a very real death. But there's a great difference, though, brothers and sisters, between the death blow that each received there's a, a great difference between the recovery of the, from the death blow of the lamb and the recovery of the death blow from the beast. Because why? The lamb went on to conquer and to rule. But the beast's continued existence, even after the death blow, will not result in victory as Christ did. And only now He has been given a, a short period to attack with a short leash and soon the death blow will be seen by all as he is cast into the eternal lake of fire. But now, after Christ's victory on the cross, what we see is that the devil deceptively covers up his defeat to the world. And now as kings and rulers arise up and they, and they persecute the church and they come and they go, but every time they arise, what we see there is that it appears that the devil has overcome that death blow. Right? Every time they arise, it's the revival of the devil's power and the devil's authority in the world. But we need to see, brothers and sisters, that it is so crystal clear in our text that what it is describing is the great nemesis of Christ who is the devil. Right, who stands behind all of the wicked nations and kingdoms of this world who persecute God's people. I mean, look at the similarities. It is Christ who has His name written on His people. It is the beast who has His name written on His people. It is Christ who has many diadems. It is the beast who tries to rep uh, re uh, represent that here on earth by having many diadems. It is Christ who rules over every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. It is the beast who rules over every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. 
It is both of them exercising authority over the church age. And as oppressive governments and world systems throughout history arise, more and more people are drawn to the beast as they are amazed by its exercise of power in the world. But what else do we see in our text today? We see that the beast has two agendas. To gather worshipers and to persecute those who refuse to worship him. This leads us to our second point this morning. The beast's agendas. The beast's agendas. The first of his two agendas is revealed in verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given him his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Worship is a way of, of doing what? Of showing allegiance, of loyalty, of offering praise. Now the fact that the beast and the dragon are both worshipped likewise demonstrates that the, the dragon concentrates his authority and his power in a special way in the beast. Which is why when people look upon the beast, right, they praise it for its incomparability, don't they? And they worship it. But what we read here, what they say, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? It sounds very familiar to other things that we hear in Scripture, doesn't it? It, hears, it sounds very familiar to what people say of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Think about Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. In the Song of Moses, what does Moses say? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you in majestic holiness? And so it is Satan now we see who equips rulers of kingdoms throughout history to draw people away from Christ. Right? He equips them with the ability and the power and the authority to appear to rival Christ's here on earth. To manipulate the masses. To impress them with His power. Right? This was done with people like Nero. This was done with, with people like Domitian and the other emperors who followed. This was likewise done with people like Adolf Hitler. This was done with people like Stalin. This was done with people like today Kim Jong-un, for example. I was reading a story recently from spring 2022. And it detailed a conference that was taking place in North Korea. And what was recorded is that all these government officials who were gathered entered into this room to a giant framed picture of the North Korean leader. And as they entered, they bowed to it. And as he gives his speech before these thousands, what he demands of them is worship. And not only are they demanded to worship him, but they are demanded to offer ultimate and absolute obedience to the ruling party's socialist ideology. One defector from North Korea is on record as saying that the children in North Korea are told that Kim Jong-un is God and that he knows their thoughts. With all of this, brothers and sisters, this is what I'm trying to convey to you is that we need to see and we need to understand that the, the beast represents all demonic state power that demands worship. Right? The beast represents all demonic state power that demands worship. Just like in the book of Daniel. Remember when Daniel and his allies are, are told to, to bow down and to worship this image. And yet, I also want us to see that it can come in more subtle forms as well. 
It can come in, the beast can show himself in, in more subtle forms. Right? He, he can show himself likewise, not only in dictatorships, but in democratic societies as well. Right? Brainwashing the, the population right? through school, through what you see and what you hear, what you're told. Right? As it desires the inhabitants of that land to what? To look to the state as Messiah. Right? To look to the state and the government to give us all that we need. Right? To tell us what is true and false. To tell us what is right and wrong. Even morally and spiritually and religiously. And when you do that, brothers and sisters, you need to see that you are worshipping the beast. Right? You are worshipping the beast. And whenever that happens, we see that it is the devil who is behind it. Empowering and giving rise to the beast. So that is his first agenda. His second agenda, though, is to persecute those who refuse to worship him. Look with me at verse 5, please. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth who worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. I ask you, how long is the beast given authority for? Forty-two months. That number sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It keeps coming up over and over again. This is the the same amount of time that the dragon has been given to make war on the saints. This is the same amount of time that that the woman is nourished in the wilderness that we're told in chapter 12. And so what we need to see again that these 42 months are a, a determined period of time that God has given and permitted and allowed the, the, the devil and the dragon and the beast to, to um, exercise its power here on earth. And that time period being the church age. During this time, then the beast blasphemes God. It blasphemes the saints. And it seeks to make war on God's people. Right? Let's, let's look at Revelation 12.17 once more and see how it's talking about the exact same time period as we discussed last week. In verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. In verse 7 of of Revelation 13, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It is describing the exact same time period. Now many of you are probably familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran pastor who stood up to Nazi Germany. And because of it, he was executed in a a concentration camp. Um, And as I was reading and studying, I came across this quotation, so I want to give it credit. In the Reformed Expository uh, Commentary, uh, this this quote from, from Bonhoeffer is placed there with in the context of what we're studying here today. And this is the quote from Bonhoeffer. He says this, The messengers of Jesus will be hated until the end of time. 
They will be blamed for all divisions which rend cities and homes. Jesus and His disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. Is this not what the beast has been doing? Is this not what the beast continues to do today? We've seen this with Rome in the first century. But brothers and sisters, Rome of the first century pales in comparison to Rome of the second and the third century. Right? What, what the saints endured under Nero and Domitian, it pales in comparison to what they endured under Trajan in the second century and what they endured on, under Diocletian at the end of the third and the beginning of the fourth century. We read in, in I believe it was the year 117 AD, a, a governor writes to Trajan and says, all these Christians are being brought to us. What do you want us to do with them? And Trajan says to them, well, make them denounce Christ and sacrifice to the gods or kill them. In 303 AD, Diocletian supports these edicts that were meant to destroy Christianity. Edicts that said that every Christian building was to be razed. It was to be demolished. That every Christian book, all the Bibles, were to be burned. Right? He supported edicts that said that if you were to go to the court of law, you must first offer sacrifice. Which did what? It barred Christians from ever using the legal system. Likewise, he told governors to arrest all bishops. And you know how they got out of jail? Offer sacrifice to the gods. That's how they get out of jail. Right? Over time, what we see is a very uh, systematized persecution that is being put into place as we move along in the centuries, from the 2nd century and to the 3rd century. Right? This is what John is writing about, that the beast will do against God's people. He will make war on them. And this is what we continue to see throughout the course of history. Just read the history books. This is the exact same type of persecution that the, Reform- that the Reformers had to deal with during the period of the Reformation. This is the exact same thing that we read going on for Christians in the Middle East with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Right? The devil works in them to blaspheme God and to attack God's people. And we need to see, not just in one little area of the world, but the whole world, we see that He has given authority over every tribe and people and language whose names are not written in the book of life. John universalizes it. It's the whole worldwide effect that this beast has. So, brothers and sisters, what is the response then of, of the saints who must live through this? Well, this takes us to our third and our final point this morning, which is the call to the saints. The call to the saints. Please look with me at verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In the preceding verses, John tells the saints what you can expect to happen. Here now in these verses, they are reminded of the faith and of the perseverance that they have been called to even when they encounter the beast 
and those who worship the beast as they persecute them and seek to destroy and devour them. And we see first they are reminded of what? They are reminded of the one in whom they have placed their faith in. Which is who? It is the Lamb. Right? He gives to the saints confidence. He gives to the saints assurance. Because our names, we know, have been written down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, unlike those who persecute you and I. Five times in this book, the book of life is used. Every time it symbolizes that the salvation of God's people has been determined and is secure. And here that is no different. Because of the triumph of the Lamb, God will bring about the salvation of His people. But know this, that each one of your names, each one of you who believes in Jesus, right? Christ came to redeem. Why? Because your name was already written upon the list of inhabitants in the eternal new Jerusalem before history ever began. And so if the world persecutes you, if the, if the systems of this world persecute you for your identification with Christ, He says to you in our text today, do not worry. Do not worry, for your name is written down in the book of life, never to be removed. Right? Your names are secure. There is nothing the devil. There is nothing the beast. There is nothing any of his minions can do to, to erase your name from that book. Your salvation is secure. They can take you captive. They can imprison you. They can torture you. They can take your life. But they cannot take away your salvation in Christ. They cannot take it away. And think about, brothers and sisters, how the truth of those words inspired so many Christian martyrs through history to continue to hold fast to the name of Christ unto death because they knew my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. My salvation is secure. My name is on the list of inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. And there I shall go. Right? People like Antipas that we read about earlier in the book of Revelation. People like Thomas Cromwell during the time of the Reformation who was martyred for his faith. People like Bonhoeffer. We almost hear an identical call in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. The saints are told this. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So then here we also see what Christians are called to. And that is to remain faithful to one. It is to remain faithful to one. It is to not give in to new movements that sprout up during our time. It is to not give in to new ideologies and new doctrines. It is not to adore and worship new leaders or new kingdoms or new rulers of this world. Right? Seeing that faithfulness to Christ in part means not worshiping the beast as the rest of the world does. In addition, the fact that we learn that our text says that the beast in verse 5 was allowed to exercise authority. That our text tells us in verse 7 that he was allowed to make war on the saints, ought to bring relief and comfort to your souls, knowing that Satan can only do that which God has permitted him to do. And not a thing more. It also ought to encourage us seeing that it is the hand of the Lord that is behind everything that happens to his people. Right? God is behind it all. Right? God is ruling, God is bringing history to pass. But a part of the church's history 
is suffering. It's suffering. But suffering will always lead to glory. Right? Suffering will lead to glory. So let us also then see, brothers and sisters, from our text, that there can be no neutrality in who we worship. The text makes it crystal clear, doesn't it? Because both Christ and the beast demand worship. They both demand allegiance. They both demand loyalty. And you can only serve one. You cannot bow the knee to both. And then finally, let us see this. And that goes for both the regenerate and the unregenerate here today. Those who worship the beast will say what? Who is like the beast? Who can fight against him? Right? The beast will be incomparable to all other created beings in his evil and in his power and in his authority. And he will persecute the church and, and people will, will praise him and be drawn to him because of it. But let us see that their eternal destination, as long as they follow that beast, is eternal damnation. But what about the other one who is unlike none other? What do we hear in Micah chapter 7, verse 18? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression from the remnant of His inheritance? Hearing this, brothers and sisters, who do you wish to adore? Right? Who do you wish to serve? The beast or Christ? Right? God provides a way of escape through His Son, Jesus Christ. The devil and the beast provide you no such escape. So let us see there is none like our Lord. There is none like Him in nature. None like Him in His works. None but He can take away the sins of His people. None but He can offer you peace and security, and protection, and everlasting life. That God, unlike all others, has provided for you a scapegoat in His Son. And He has done so while yet we were still sinners. And so we ought to praise God. And we ought to worship God and adore God. Knowing if this is what He did while we were His enemies, just think what He will do for you as His friend. With that, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us as we depart this morning with the words of our Lord spoken through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43 of Isaiah. Let us think about these words this day and be encouraged and comforted by them as we deal with the beast even in our own midst. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are Mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. May we clutch it tightly. May we hold it dearly. May we cling to it desperately. 
seeing that you have the words of eternal life. Lord, we ask that you would help us uh, to realize uh, the message today. Lord, that you would strengthen us in the midst of the ungodliness in our world. That you would help us to, to be bold witnesses for Christ and to obey the commandments of God no matter what the beast and his followers might say. Lord, cause us to fixate our eyes upon the cross of Jesus every day. May we see what our destiny, our eternal destiny is, even if those who hate us and persecute us would seek to take our life. It only means better days for the saints. It means face-to-face fellowship with God forever. And so, Lord, we ask that You strengthen us, that You comfort us, that You encourage us, knowing that You are our Redeemer and that nothing or no one can do a thing to us that You have not allowed and decreed. We pray all these things and in Christ's name. Amen.